Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. As spring beckons, a lot of us are thinking about spring planting and landscaping. We have some food for thought on that and about how to do it in perhaps a more environmentally responsible way. Joining me in studio are Josh Ward, a community conservation planner with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Mitch Leachman is director of programs for the St. Louis Audubon Society. And Scott Woodbury is manager of the Whitmore, Whitmore Wildflower Garden at Shaw Nature Reserve. He joins us by phone. Thanks, gentlemen, for being with us. Great to have you. Thanks for having us. I think spring ultimately is going to get here. If we can get down to work on our planning, but uh, we'll see. Josh, let me start with you. When we talk about naturescaping or uh, landscaping, we're really talking about uh, imitating nature, aren't we? We are, yeah, yeah. So we're we're using native plants, and, and these are plants that have evolved to be in our region. They've evolved to our climate geology. And um, so they're well-suited for, for landscaping, and they typically require less maintenance, I mean, depending on the application. Um, and they are also providing a lot of benefit to, to uh, wildlife and providing important urban wildlife habitat. We want to get into that in more detail. But, Scott, it was, seems to me that uh, that's, that's pretty much what you've got going there at, uh, at your place. Well, that's, that's true to a large extent. Uh, Shaw Nature Reserve is very natural and beautiful, and we do a lot to enhance that. But I think most of the people that I work with in the community are still gardening in a traditional fashion. So they're trying to use native plants that work well in this environment in a traditional fashion. And in a lot of those gardens throughout the community are kind of seamless, and you, you can't even necessarily recognize that they're different unless you know that the, the plants that they're using are actually native to Missouri. What's, what's the advantage of, uh, of going native, if you will? Well, Josh touched on a couple, and, and really one of the big ideas is that we're using plants that service nature instead of using plants that simply service us. I mean, we, we all get excited about seeing beautiful plants that are in flower and lots of color and texture. Um, but I think that what people are starting to think about nowadays is how can we have plants that are also beautiful and service nature, things that attract birds, butterflies, provide homes for them, provide foods for, food for them. Um, that's, that's a major advantage. Mitch, I guess that's where you come in when you're talking about uh, uh, butterflies and, and birds and other things. Tell us, the, what is the Audubon Society's role in, in this whole concept? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it still surprises a lot of folks when they hear about St. Louis Audubon uh, right. being into plants. Uh, I go around town, I actually deliver presentations to garden clubs about native landscaping, about bird gardening. Um, so uh, it, it's really what, what Scott and, and Josh just referred to and highlighted, uh, the simple fact that our birds, our songbirds, uh, throughout Missouri and Illinois, our songbirds uh, require insect protein for reproduction. They feed their babies, they feed their young insect protein almost primarily, uh, and uh, they can't get that off of non-native plants. They can't find those insects in landscapes that are just turf grass and boxwoods and imported plants. The insects that eat plants evolved with those plants and that's what uh, uh, nature provides, right? In the wilds, in our national parks, in our, in our conservation areas, uh, you'd find a functioning ecosystem but we create a landscape with imported plants and we didn't bring the, the insects over with them. Mm -hmm. So. So that's, that's where Audubon came into this whole thought process of, well, we want to support birds, we want to conserve them, we recognize how pretty and valuable they are, 
how can we support them in a more fundamental structural way? And it turns out gardening with native plants is one of the simplest ways to do that. Josh, what kind of native plants are we talking about? Uh, well, all kinds. And I, I'd just like to touch on something that, sure. that Mitch brought up with, with the uh, insects feeding the, the birds. Um, if you look at something like our oak, oak species as a whole, there are several different species. They support over 400 uh, different species of moths and butterflies. And those are all moths and butterflies that these birds are voraciously eating on, you know, in the springtime when they're raising their young. Uh, when you look at some of the exotic species that, that didn't evolve here and more of an ornamental introduced from somewhere else, uh, you know, they can support as little as zero. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, species of, of Lepidoptera or moth and butterfly larva. So, uh, you know, it really does make a difference with the wildlife. And, um, you know, we, we don't just talk about trees. We talk about different shrubs, um, a lot of perennial wildflowers, some grasses. Um, so there's, there's a whole host of uh, different kind of plants that we can use in, in these native landscaping applications. Are you basically suggesting, suggesting that is, that uh, people just give up their lawn and just, just plant these native, uh, native kinds of plants? No, I, w- I wouldn't say we're suggesting that. Um, I mean, some people do do that. And I see a lot of it, pictures that look like that's exactly what's been done. Yeah, yeah. I think it's always better to start small, you know, and, and kind of get your bearing and, and learn what you're doing. Um, but every, every little bit helps. And I, I mean, just a personal anecdote. Uh, at my old house, I planted a small native garden. I planted one common milkweed plant in there. Mm-hmm. Um, come monarch mig- migration time, I had a monarch at that one milkweed plant le- actively laying eggs. And so it's, uh, it, it doesn't have to be big to make a difference. That's for sure. That's, uh, if that's I good. could jump in there. Uh, dude, please. Uh, on, on the subject of lawn, uh, I think that we all agree that Lawn is really an important part of uh, our home landscape, our home environment. We all, um, many of us have different uses of lawn. Uh, We recognize that it's important to have space for kids to run around and play. I've got a 12-year-old, and lawn is really an important part of uh, what we do at home. Um, And lawn also provides a frame for some of the native landscapes that people create. Uh, much like a frame around a painting at a museum, a lawn or possibly a ground cover of a certain type of plant surrounding a native landscape uh, can provide that that border that makes the landscape look better. So the different uses of, of lawn, we're, we're all about reducing some lawn, but... Um, but as Josh pointed out, we don't we don't want to encourage people to remove all their lawn at once. It really can be uh, too much work to have to take care of that much garden, and it's also a shock to the neighbors if you do something like that. It's also a lot of work to mow the lawn. <laughs> That's true, but it is. Um, it, this brings up uh, something that I, I talk about quite a bit, and so there are different styles of native landscaping, some of which require more maintenance than others. And if you look at a, at a traditional uh, landscape style like you would see at Missouri Botanical Garden or even at the Whitmire Wildflower Garden where I'm at, out here at Shaw Nature Reserve, parts of our garden are very traditional. You could walk down the path and have no idea that the plants that we're demonstrating are native to Missouri unless you read the, the label. And so if you use that style of gardening uh, where all the plants are in groupings, there is a significant amount of maintenance that's involved. It's just regular old gardening 101, weeding, watering, mulching, keeping plants divided and trimmed and uh, away from some of the other plants that might, you know, be a little aggressive. 
Um, but if you're gardening in a more naturalistic style where you put some plants in the ground and, and allow them to spread from seed a little bit, um, we call this a tossed salad landscape, a landscape that uh, that looks a little bit more like nature. You, you mentioned earlier imitating nature. This is kind of imitating nature, and, and the maintenance uh, responsibilities do tend to go down when you use this garden style. You see, I'm, I'm a little confused because I thought that uh, when we're, you're talking about uh, they uh, involve a lot of work, I thought we're talking about something like the prairie where you just kind of let it go and uh, do whatever it's going to do all by itself. Uh, we're not talking about that at all, or, or are we? That's a part of what we do, um, and... I think that a good example of how I can answer that is if you look at the, the landscapes at Alberici Corporation in Overland, um, the larger part of their, well, it's not new anymore, relatively new um, corporate campus is a seeded tallgrass prairie. But if you look at the, the courtyard and the entrance to um, Alberici, you'll see that um, they're very traditional arrangements of plants where plants are grouped um, by certain types, and they're repeated along the walkway, and um, and plants that are aggressive are avoided, and plants that are well-behaved and stay uh, well put um, and probably are smaller are, are used um, in these key areas where people are coming in and out of the building and driving in and out of the property. So there's a traditional garden style that's used in those key areas, and then the larger landscape, which might normally just be mowed turf grass, trees, and shrubs, is now a dynamic landscape that's full of a, a huge amount of diversity growing in the style of a tall grass prairie. Mitch, I want to come back to you because Josh had mentioned a moment ago the monarch butterfly and the fact that it was uh, laying eggs. We had talked a little bit off the air about the monarch. Uh, they they uh, can only uh, exist on milkweed, isn't that correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. So what is the situation, as far as you understand it, with regard to restoring the population of monarchs, which were uh, in peril at one point? For sure. Uh, yeah, the monarch is a, is a great example uh, of, of what we were talking about earlier, of, the, of uh, native plants being required for those insects that are such an important part of the food web of the natural ecosystem. Um, because in this case, the monarch butterflies cannot reproduce any other plant. The caterpillars themselves can't eat any other plant. Without milkweed, we don't have monarchs. So we have seen, uh, first of all, tremendous variation in the, the monarch population in winter. And that's how the scientists are measuring that particular critter, the wintering population, the area that it occupies in Mexico, in the mountains, um, because it's almost impossible to estimate their numbers during the summer when they're spread out across most of the United States. Um, but while that population has come and gone, it's, it's been up and down. This past winter's observations have a significant increase uh, in their wintering population, certainly over the last half a dozen years. It's still far below one of the, the high figures they had about 20 years ago, but we're very optimistic. Why do we need monarchs? Well, you know, um, uh, monarch itself, first of all, uh, is a really cool critter, and, and that, that's actually where I come in today. So we may have started our program and we may have gotten into native plants as Audubon because of the ecology of birds and plants. But uh, for me on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I care about these things and I get fired up about it because 
it's so inspirational. It's so uplifting. Uh, it's so motivating uh, to see nature in action, to see predators and prey, to see different critters, to see butterflies and moths and beetles in your own landscape or at your church or your school. And that's in contrast to that turf grass and boxwood lawn. You may want a turf grass and boxwood lawn because it's neat and tidy and you might like that look, but it's very rare. I don't know that I've yet come across anybody who's claimed to have been inspired by turf grass and boxwood. <laughs> monarchs inspire me. Go ahead, Josh. And, and when we, we talk about monarchs, I mean, it, it's, it's probably hard to come up with a specific use for humans. Um, uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the best things about them is it's just a really cool natural phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, these things, they, they migrate 3,000 miles over three countries. And uh, they do this in about four or five generations. And so you, you, you think about the monarchs that are leaving Mexico are a different generation from the monarchs that are coming back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. So that's just really cool. But we also like to kind of lump other native pollinators in with the monarch butterfly. So uh, we look at things like native bees. We have over 400 species of native bees in Missouri. And uh, we're actually, there's uh, some studies that are documenting really high diversity in St. Louis of native bees. And these, these are critters that are pollinating, you know, 75% of our food crops and uh, are, you know, playing in a critical role uh, in ecosystems. So, Scott, anything you want to add to that before I take a break? <laughs> yeah, I would. Um, there are a number of things that, a few things that um, over the past three decades that I've been gardening in St. Louis that have really moved the native landscaping dial. And one of them is... Uh, this relationship between monarch butterflies and milkweed plants. The effort that's gone into creating awareness about this relationship and the need to support monarch butterflies nationwide and worldwide has really moved the way people garden. And it's made milkweed plants rare in garden centers. It's hard to get your hands on them because people are buying them so fast. It's made interest in gardening, and our garden here at Shaw Nature Reserve grow, and we see far more participation in classes. And I see, particularly because I'm an, a parent of a 12-year-old, I see kids that know about milkweeds and they know about monarchs. And so this education is moving into the schools at all levels, uh, and it really is making a, a major difference in our community. Well, that's As Josh says, that's because they are indeed very, very cool. Got to take a break. We'll do that now and come back. I'd like to encourage callers, too, if you have questions uh, or issues that you'd like to raise with regard to uh, native landscaping, if you will, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email at talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. Back in a moment, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And welcome back as we continue our conversation on native landscaping with Josh Ward with the Missouri Department of Conservation, Mitch Leachman, St. Louis Audubon Society, and Scott Woodbury with the Shaw Nature Reserve. While we're talking about critters, and I'm not sure which of you gentlemen to go to on this, I have in my notes here and have been reading that uh, squirrels and, and rabbits can even be discouraged from th this kind of landscape. Do I have that right or not? Oh, I'm going to let Scott answer that one. <laughs> Give that uh, well, um, I 
am a trained horticulturist, and I've gardened um, with native plants for the nearly the last three decades. But the decade before that, I was gardening with non-native plants. And I'm not sure that squirrels, chipmunks, rabbits have learned to distinguish uh, a native plant from a non-native plant. I will say that there are some plants that that rabbits tend to avoid, uh, like sedges, for example, and plants that they love, like uh, leather flower. But um, I haven't I haven't noticed that trend, to tell you the truth. Okay, well, uh, we'll certainly take your word <laughs> take take your word for it. Let's go to the phones. We have some callers uh, coming in, want to get into the conversation, and Richard's been waiting the longest, so let's bring him in. He's calling from Hello. St. Louis. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, y- yes, I, I live in the southwest garden neighborhood, just across from the botanical gardens, and we, we have small uh, front lawns here, and they're not really uh, useful, and they're often hilly. Uh, years ago, I replaced uh, my grass with liriope, and I'm thinking of doing it at another building that I own, and I'm, you know, wondering, is that I don't think that's a native plant, and I wonder if that uh, qualifies, or if there's some other ground cover that I might consider. Thanks for the call. Who's got the answer to that question? I'd give it a stab. All right. Uh, Richard, I think that um, a, a really nice alternative to liriope would be Pennsylvania sedge. It's low. Um, it, it grows in a similar fashion to liriope. Liriope is a ground cover, and the function of a ground cover is to cover a larger piece of ground and reduce the amount of maintenance that you may have to do on, for example, a, a hill in your neighborhood, in your yard. Right. Uh, so we love Pennsylvania sedge for that purpose. I, I'll point out also that liriope is um, one of these plants that, that isn't considered invasive in, in our region, but it's one of the species of liriope does have the potential to become an invasive, and so I, I am a little nervous about that plant. Richard, thank you for the call. Does that answer your question? Um, Yes, it does. Pennsylvania Sedge. Okay, there we go. Let's take another one. Uh, This one comes from Webster Groves. Anna, go ahead. Hi, friends. This is Anna. Um, MSD was uh, in the paper the other day asking for people to pay more in taxes for the uh, flooding, and I wondered if you could talk about native plants and the long root system and... Um, why that would be an important uh, solution to the problem of extra water in the pipes. All righty. Thanks for the call. Good Josh? to hear from you. Yeah. Um, I mean, so uh, MSD is is actively trying to uh, install more green infrastructure to, to deal with stormwater. And um, they developed a guide along with us and some other partners. I think Scott may have been part of that as well. Um, developed a guide on how to use native plants uh, within these green infrastructure stormwater practices. Uh, when we look at something like turf grass, um, the root system on turf grass, turf grass will typically only go as, as deep as the grass is long. So, you know, we're talking a couple inches maybe. Uh, when we talk about native prairie plants, I mean, we can have roots going down several feet. Um, so when you have that in these stormwater management practices, you're promoting more infiltration of water into the ground, uh, you know, uh, putting more water into the groundwater and, and then reducing the amount of runoff that goes into our creeks and rivers and causes flash floods and local flooding and things like that. So, what about rain gardens? Uh, rain gardens, same concept. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Okay. Yeah. We have an email here from John, and I'll throw this one to you, uh, Mitch. Can your guests recommend native plants to replace my ewes and ivy yet are unpalatable to deer? Oh, gee, boy, that's <laughs> as fun a, fun a question as, uh, as rabbits and squirrels. Um, uh, speaking of rabbits and squirrels, I just wanted to return to that for a minute, especially because I'm your token bird guy here uh, and already made that case of helping birds uh, for the reproduction with that insect food. But of course, another piece of the food process when it comes to birds would be feeding the predator birds, feeding the hawks, eagles, and owls. And so if somebody is concerned about, you know, squirrels, chipmunks, rabbits uh, in their landscape, the more habitat, the more of a natural system they have in place, the more of the top predators they're also going to have in some of those those little uh, plant nibblers might be uh, taken care of by some of those large birds. Um, as far as uh, deer goes, um, we do know probably more than anything uh, in, in this, uh, and again, uh, Scott might jump in on the end of this, but we do know that the more variety of plant material there is, in particular, the more natural systems there are in a particular area, the less pressure there will be on any particular plant or planting or particular yard. Um, some of the folks that are most frustrated that live in deer country, it's less about what plants they have and whether it's native or not, it's about the fact that they may be the only person gardening in their neighborhood and everybody else has just turf grass. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what's the deer going to eat? The deer is going to eat the hostas, the deer is going to eat the coneflowers, they're going to eat the plants that are there visible in front of them. So in other words, my best answer to uh, the uh, request is encourage your neighbors to do more native plant landscaping and uh, all together you'll have less and less deer pressure. It's funny you mentioned that. We were talking to someone last night, my, my wife and I, and they live in a neighborhood uh, in St. Louis County, and we said all their neighbors have dogs, which means that all the rabbits <laughs> have congregated in their backyard because they don't have a dog. Uh -huh. Things can work that way. Okay, back to the phones. James in St. Louis, uh, go ahead with your question. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Thank you. Um, qu a quick question. I know that there's some opportunities for a seed mix from Department of Conservation uh, as an alternative, alternative to mow and grow uh, fescue uh, out there and a few other DNR uh, State Department uh, opportunities that way. But my question is, uh, do you, are you aware of any buffalo grass, current uh, plantings that um, are, would be germane to a, a replacement of the fescue mow and grow at this time for a low growth, kind of long lasting turf grass as a replacement there? I think maybe Scott, was that the one you, you, yeah. you can take? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have found that buffalo grass in eastern Missouri is not as good a choice as buffalo grass in Kansas City, for example. Uh, they get a little less rainfall, and buffalo grass tends to do better with, with less moisture. In our environment, it tends to let a lot of weeds in, and then it becomes a bit of a maintenance problem. Um, I have not found... Sorry. Once established, it, once it's established, it's still uh, uh, liable liable for weeds. Yes. Yeah. It it really is. It it lets um, it lets weeds grow in it because it's not growing as densely, um, mm. and so uh, it does require some work to keep it um, to be, keep it just full of grass itself and without the weeds. Okay. Now, cool. 
I'm not, and that's not a problem. Um, I just, just as an aside, we're working with Northside Oasis Community Coalition on North Grand with a MSD project of green infrastructure up there, and kind of looking for some alternatives to, uh, you know, using natives and different plant landscapes that would serve as suitable replacements, obviously, for what we're talking about uh, with uh, just a short-rooted uh, mangrove type fescue. So appreciate that. Sure. Can I, can I say one more thing about? about fescue sure uh, and that is the tall fescue um i don't think anybody's really found a, a better alternative to tall fescue uh if you're going to have foot traffic um it's the one plant that seems to do better than most for our region i would say though that um tolerating some weeds in our tall fescue is um is going to benefit the bee population uh, mowing it at three inches instead of mowing it at one and a half or two inches will also um, go a long way toward promoting some of the native bees um, that can find some habitat and in in a in a in a fescue lawn. So the, I think the name of the game is to not make it pristine, but to let a few weeds, to tolerate a few dandelions and a few um, violets. Um, and I think that you will uh, benefit wildlife if you if you treat your lawn a little bit differently. Thanks for the call, James. Speaking of bees, uh, Mitch, how are we doing with the bee population? We heard so much about colony collapse a while back. Are we still uh, faced with that? Well, an uh, important distinction, and, and uh, actually it was mentioned earlier when we first got started, uh, is the difference between the imported European honeybees uh, in the colonies that we're all familiar with uh, versus our native bee species, of which across the continent we actually have about 4,000 species of native bees. Uh, it's an important distinction um, because the, the function of those different types of bees are very different. Uh, everything that we talk about as far as native plants and our native ecosystem and nature across the continent was perfectly fine before we imported European honeybees. Um, the colony collapse disorder that you specifically reference was about European honeybees. Uh, it, it, it is not a phenomenon uh, that is causing trouble with native bees. There are other issues that native bees are dealing with, and the one that probably concerns us the most, um, besides just habitat loss, which is a serious concern, climate change, both serious issues we could spend an entire show sure. talking about, but the, the neonicotinoid pesticides uh, that have been developed and are actually part of some plants in big box retailers, uh, and they've been reported as serious problems uh, and very specific issues in bee die-offs native bumblebee die-offs in many situations around the country. So that brings us all the way back to sort of where we start this conversation of when you use plants, when you use uh, systems that want to be here that evolved in this region, you may not need any pesticides. You may not need any insecticides. You may have, and ideally over time, you will have a, a predator-prey relationship within your own backyard you will have little lacewing larvae that are eating the aphids on your milkweed mm. rather than spraying the aphids off your milkweed, just wait for the lacewings to come along and eat them. Josh, that's one of the things that I had in my notes with regard to the pesticides, that these native landscaping would really eliminate a lot of the uh, pesticide use. Right, right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the benefits is that, sure. that it wouldn't require as much, and, you, and you're more promoting a, a good relationship with the insects uh, yeah. with native plants rather than to trying to kill everything off that would 
impact. Let uh, me ask a question uh, sort of off the wall, I guess, and that is in this native landscaping that we've been talking about, how about sticking some vegetables in there, some tomato plants and that sort of thing? Is that part of the part of the deal? Well, yeah, and in, in fact, um, there are uh, there's actually a resource coming out soon that talks about companion plantings, and so you can uh, plant specific native uh, wildflowers that will provide resources for the pollinators that will pollinate your vegetable garden, and 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 there's a wide range of, of specialties when we talk about native pollinators. Uh, some of them are very specific and will only. Uh, pollinate squash and pumpkins, like the squash bee, and some are more of generalists, and they'll pollinate several different mm -hmm. species. So, you can definitely work in in uh, concert with your your vegetable garden. Right. Okay. Our time is winding down. I want to get one more call in here. Let's bring in Bob from Milstadt, uh, Illinois. He wants to get back to the milkweed uh, ecosystem. I take it, Bob. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. I've been raising milkweed now for a few years, and I noticed there's an entire ecosystem around the milkweed. Um, and I let a portion of my yard go native, so to speak, and I wound up with numerous different uh, wild plants. Uh, Joe Pieweed was one, but my question is I see a lot of different flies and wasps that I can't identify, um, and I was wondering if you could recommend a book for those of us who are novices, uh, would help us identify some of the insects that are associated in those ecosystems. Also, just for your information, we released uh, 469 monarchs last year. Um, we found that the predators are also concentrated because there's so little milkweed, so we have to raise the eggs and the caterpillars separate or they don't survive. Bob, thank you for the call. Do you want to respond to that, uh, Mitch? Well, uh, I was going to respond first on a sort of a, a 21st century technology end. Uh, if you're connected to Facebook at all, there's a group called Bi-State Bugs, which is curated uh, by James Traeger out at Shaw Nature Reserve. And it's a perfect place of just uh, loading in a photo of the last critter you saw and you'll get a quick identification. For hard copy purposes, uh, a book that I bought a number of years ago uh, um, for a class I was taking. Um, you know, very small, very compact, and it covers a lot of sort of the usual critters you might see. And I think it's a golden guide uh, on insects, um, probably available pretty readily at almost any resource. Uh, Josh, I don't know if you had a specific reference for, for insects. Um, there, I, I don't know the exact title of this book, but Heather Holm, um, we've had her at our workshops. Pollinators of Native Plants. Thank That's you. That's what it's called. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and she has one on bees specifically yep. as well. Um, so those would be a good resource. And, and the Conservation Department's website uh, is always good resource for, for looking up different species and, and trying to identify. We'll, we'll put a link to that to all of your websites on our website at stlpublicradio.org. Got to wrap it up, but I'd like to have a, a, a final uh, thought from each of you. And uh, Scott, we'll start with you. Um, what's your best advice to people as they be and thinking about uh, the planting and what they might be doing in their yards and gardens? Well, um, I would have to say that right now, if they could come to the Partners for Native Landscaping workshop on uh, March 29th and 30th at the Danforth Plant Science Center, they will get access to the best uh, professional advice uh, that we have in St. Louis. We will put uh, information about that on our website as well. Thank you for that. Josh, what about you? Final thought? Yeah, um, I, a lot of what we're doing here in the urban area 
you know, we're talking about conservation and um, providing wildlife habitat and all that. But another important thing to look at is that we're providing opportunities for people to learn about and connect with nature. Mm-hmm. And and there are a lot of benefits that go along with that. And, and so I think it's important that we're y- y- working in urban areas is not only about biodiversity and conserving wildlife habitat. It's all about also about people right. and their connection with that. Great. Thank you for that. And Mitch, final thought. I would simply say just get started. Um, uh, I started very small uh, 15 years ago in my own small yard in Maryland Heights. And uh, it literally is a build it and they will come thought process. And every year I'm looking to add more plants. I'm looking to add more diversity and more interest in cool critters because because it's just so cool. It's just so great to be outside and and see nature at your back door and you don't have to go to the park to see it. It's fun to watch. Just Just get started. I want to thank you all very much. Uh, Josh Ward, thank you for being with us. He's the Missouri Department of Conservation. Mitch Leachman is with the St. Louis Audubon Society and Scott Woodbury with the Shaw Nature Reserve. Thank you once again, gentlemen. Thanks, Tom. Good good planting for you this season. 